Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Clifton Duncan. Clifton is a classically trained actor, singer, and Broadway veteran. Hey Clifton, thanks for coming on. Hey man, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So I started following you, I think, because it was Carrie Smith. She'd included both of us in a tweet or something like that. And that I just started seeing your stuff and I started following you. And you've been speaking about some of the a lot of the same things I have. Um, yeah. But you're doing it more from an, I don't want to say more from an artistic uh, perspective, but you're bringing that into it. Um, you know, because like, like I mentioned, you, you're a classically trained actor. You keep talking about Shakespeare and stuff like that. So yeah. when did you start noticing like the identity politics version of it? Because like sometimes, I, I mean, I keep saying it like woke and stuff like that. And that's where a lot of this stuff comes from, but some of it's not quite that either. It's just a weird type of identity politics. So like, when did you start seeing all that start coming in? Um, you know, I, I don't know if there was ever any sort of solid uh, point where I said, wait a minute, something is going on. I think mm-hmm. uh, it might be more accurate to say that uh, there was a point where I made certain internal decisions. Uh, one, one of them was a, uh, you know, one was that I decided that I'm not my demographic, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a human being. And uh, sort of alongside that decision was, or that that internal shift was also saying, not going to use my race as a crutch for anything that, that goes wrong in my life. Um, another shift happened a few years after that, probably two years after that, where I, I said, you know, I, um, I'm not, I'm not going to apologize anymore about being a man. And, um, you know, I, I really internalized this idea of my, my own inferiority and, and the idea that, uh, you know, women are wonderful, uh, you know, no, no matter what they may or may not do or say. And um, between these two internal shifts, I, I began to increasingly feel as though there were, there were there wasn't as much of a place in the industry, particularly in the theater industry for me. And to be honest, for years, I'd stopped going to see shows in New York City. Not For one, it's just, it's so expensive. It's prohibitively expensive um, to the extent where I feel like, um, I feel like a part alongside with the ideological bent of the theater. I mean, people complain about, you know, so-called wokeness in Hollywood, but it's, it's even more concentrated in the New York theater scene. And, um, you know, which is, you know, if you want to be successful, you know, as they say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. I mean, it is the theatrical mecca. New York City is, or at least it was, we might get into that later, uh, one of the cultural centers of the United States, if not the world. And, uh, but I stopped going to shows because I felt like they were making whatever this progressive cabal, if you want to call it that, was doing, they were pretty much making shows to please themselves. And, and, um, for years, I felt that the theater might be going the way of the opera in terms of being viewed as merely a bourgeois entertainment or, or luxury. And part of the reason is because of the, you know, it, it's, it's work that tends to appeal to this very, I don't want to call it a niche strain, but I, I think numbers wise, in terms of the people that are actually putting forth these ideas, it's very small. But in terms of people who actually agree with this stuff, I think the number is way, way, way smaller than we're led to believe. But um, um, so there, there wasn't a specific period where I said, oh, wait, something's going on. I think 
I think my views, once I changed with the way that I see myself, uh, then the world outside, you know, I began to react to what I was seeing more. And um, particularly within the last couple of years, uh, you know, I really, really unplugged from the whole sort of mainstream cultural narrative. I mean, I know that last night as we're recording this, uh, you know, the Grammys were last night and I was like, you know, I could really care less. And the, and I think a lot of people feel that way. I think increasing numbers of people feel that way. And I think just in terms of everything that's happened within the past year or so and how things have really accelerated, um, you know, I just began to feel as though I, I, I couldn't, um, you know, I, I, I'm, someone always says that someone has to say something. And at a certain point, I realized that maybe, you know, I guess I'd have to be that, that, that someone. So um, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop and seeing what the backlash is going to be. But, um, but, but, you know, yeah, there, there was, there was no specific, uh, moment. I think it just began over, it began with a personal decision over time. And then as things began to progress more and more, I felt myself more and more alienated from it. So I can't pick out a specific, uh, so that's all to say that I can't pick out a specific, uh, oh, that's fine. That's, that's great. Um, but like about some of this stuff, like, like the identity politics and whatever, but like, I, like I noticed it a lot. Because I've been focusing quite a bit on education, I notice a lot, like in the things like the disrupt texts and stuff like that. But then you also see it, you know, representation in film and representation in uh, Jesus Christ getting rid of Apu for fuck's sakes. Okay, okay, no, okay, that really, bu- that that really bugs me. Right, my family moved to from India to Canada when I was six years old. Within six right. months, my dad started running a convenience store. Okay, and then from there he went on, and him and his, some of his friends started a factory. But like. My dad was fucking up. Who? Where's my representation now, bitch? Like seriously. Like, like, right. Well, you know. Well, well, even I think the even the idea. I mean, I hear about it all the time. You know, representation, representation, representation. To me, the concept of representation is is racist. I mean, you know, I, I think to myself, you know, anyone who knows you or anyone who knows me, how could any other person represent who and what we are? And then, and to me, it's another way of saying that, you know, one, one person represents all of us, or, you know, it's, it's almost another way of saying that we all look alike and we all are alike. And we're all one thing. I mean, I thought, yeah. you know, I thought stereotyping and prejudicial treatment was wrong, but that's but, what representation represents to me. But I mean, like what I was trying to get, get at with that is like, I see it a lot in the, on the literature side of things, school side of things. Okay. Get rid of, you know, get rid of Shakespeare. Uh, Cambridge wanted that by uh, Gloucester university, get rid of, um, uh, Jesus Christ, why am I forgetting his name now? I've already canceled them. Um, Chaucer, get rid of Chaucer there. You know, like Mo- right, yeah. uh, Moby Dick is always on there, you know, Mark, uh, like Huck Finn, all that stuff. But they say, oh, there's not enough black authors and there aren't enough, you know, there's not enough representation. Like if you hear that in the arts or if you hear that in the theater and cinema, is there anyone actually going looking for stories? Is there someone going to, let's say, Africa and getting the mythology from there and saying, you know what, we'll make because there are some cool myths that come out of there. Like you can make a pretty decent fantasy movie out of that. Is there anyone doing that? Or are they just sitting there complaining saying there's not enough representation? I mean, and, and we've seen in, in other arenas, how these people, they, they'd like to tear things down, but they don't really offer, um, offer anything in its place. I mean, I can think of examples of uh, like the Nigerian playwright, Wole Shoinka, Wole Shoinka, who's most famous for, uh, for the play Death and the King's Horseman. Um, that play, there's a lot of it that's written in verse uh, and the research I did around it. I mean, I did it almost 20 years ago, but, um, but reading around the play and the author, I mean, you know, he was very heavily inspired by more classical, you know, European forms of art. I mean, there's so much of the play that's in verse and, and um, the way that it's theatricalized, but 
Um, I mean, there are people out there that are that are, you know, utilizing different forms of storytelling and uh, and, and utilizing different, um, you know. To me, to be fair, uh, I'm thinking specifically of my grad school experience. I went to New York University. They have a they have a graduate acting training uh, program for actors there, and it's it's a lot of it is very eurocentric in terms of like oh you're learning clowning or you know the the italian uh, art uh, the commedia dell'arte and uh, you know and, and you're you're learning very much you know you're studying shaw you're studying shakespeare you're studying ibsen it's very much in this sort of white um uh, european canon then you get to the black playwrights it's like lorraine hansberry and and uh, and august wilson who was the most noted and celebrated uh, uh, black american playwright that ever lived but at the same time you know at least on a training level, you know, we had teachers who would come in and, and incorporate like African gumbo dancing, which, uh, you know, Americans who are familiar with like for stepping, for instance, will be familiar with in terms of just how different ways to tell stories and unlock it. And part of that is the reaction to like, okay, this is a very heavily Eurocentric form of, of education. I mean, so I think, I think to be fair, that that is an interesting way in terms of, uh, in terms of inviting new forms of storytelling and, um, and trying to find new ways to, to, to innovate. But at the same time, um, I don't think that the answer is pretending that Shakespeare, uh, you know, or, or Homer or whatever don't exist, you know, because then you, you're not only throwing away those stories and what they teach us about humanity, but you're also throwing away, you know, just fine examples of, of successful literature that, yeah. that puts across a great story that, that you can build and learn from, like, like Wally Shoenke did, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, okay, but like, okay, that... What you were talking about there, that sounds like a really good way to say, okay, you know what, we're going to get different types of stories and different ways of telling stories, and you're not getting rid of the past. I mean, okay, I'm a bit of a science geek. You know, when Einstein came up with relativity, like they didn't just take Newtonian physics and throw it out the window. You still use that for stuff. You built off that, right? So, yeah, mm -hmm. if you're living in the United States or Canada or the UK, I think you're gonna have to expect some Shakespeare in theater school. I mean, I just, you know, it would kind of make sense, but yeah, mm -hmm. there's, there's a plethora of other things out there to bring in, but on the education side of it, I just see like, get rid of Shakespeare because we don't longer need that in the canon. And I'm like, okay, right. you're impoverishing yourself. I mean, you are like, I, I regret, like, like I said, my family comes from India. My dad used to read a lot of, um, Indian Ghazals and he used to, uh, I mean, India's got all, you know, 14 official languages. Like he could read one of them and he used to read uh, poetry and stuff and fiction in that language. Now I never learned to read it because, you know, came out here, learned English. I could speak it, but I kind of regret that. Cause I'd like to, you know, not just because of, okay, it's where I come from, whatever, but it just, I like to read. I like to read about other things. So like what you were talking about makes sense to me though. What they're doing in the schools is like, just get rid of it. I'm like, no. Why do you want to lessen what students learn? Like I, like I said, bring in the myths from Africa, bring in the storytelling. Like there was empires in Africa, you know, before it was colonized. I mean, Ethiopia had a huge empire. They took over other people. I mean, there was cultures down there. Let's go study them. And I and never hear classic, that. Well, in one of the classic tenets of Greek tragedies, you have someone who's a, high noble status and they're being brought down by what's called their tragic flaw i'm sure that there have to be you know if someone wanted to create a, 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 a 
a tragedy in the style of, you know, the Greek tradition using, you know, Ethiopia or the kingdom of Benin or something like that, then that would attract an audience that could, that could be very, you know, that could be a powerful story to tell, but like, you know, like, but the, the viewpoint on it is so, it's so narrow now. It's just about, we'll get rid of this because, I mean, I, I don't even know because I mean, I'm still, I'm still parsing through a lot of this uh, nonsense myself and, and developing a, a better understanding of, of, of the ideology driving, driving these purges. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I agree. It's it's you're, you're depriving young people of the of of the wisdom and truths that were that were uncovered and expressed by authors and writers of the past. And I think I think what's lost, you know, we call these things period pieces. You know, you're doing a Chekhov play. Anton Chekhov is a noted Russian playwright. You know, those Russians they kept turning out good writers for some reason. And uh, his understand his depth of the, uh, his depth of understanding of the human condition of, of psychology, as well as his storytelling ability, you know, he, he crafted something very unique. And, you, you know, you wa I'm watching these Russians talk about their own suffering and I'm, and I'm myself in finding, you know, ways to relate to it. And, and you know, what, one, of my, one of my things is that we are a part of this huge human chain, this human, this, this human condition. And, and the more that cultures change, the more the civilizations change, it doesn't really matter that as much because what motivates us remains, you know, stays constant. And I think if more young people are made aware that, you know, whether it's a Sophocles play from 2000 years ago or a Shakespeare play from 500 years ago or an August Wilson play from 20 years ago, there's still a connection between who we are and our shared humanity. And, you know, and, um, as divided as we are, you know, if, if you are excising these kinds of, um, you know, literary and artistic experiences from these curricula, then you're denying people the understanding of that. And you're actually in ways creating even more division of, even more of the division that you, that people are claiming that, uh, that, that they, that they don't want. And, you know, and, and they're, they're up, they're actually otherizing, <laughs> otherizing oh. other people in a weird way. But I mean, like the, like we're talking about like the, the classics and stuff like that. I, I'm free, forgetting the author now. Cause some of the stuff I read it, you know, over 20 years ago, um, but it was the Greek play. I think it was Antigone where the women decide to stop sleeping with the men. If they go to off the war. It's um, it's, it's a uh, Lysistrata. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Like I said, I was yeah. like, you know, like I said, over 20 years ago, I think that one was like closer yeah, to 30, yeah. but okay. You could teach that to kids. It doesn't matter what, like, okay. She's not going to sleep with him because she wants him to do something like that. I mean, okay, that's a common trope, like it's being used over and over and over again. But I mean, you, I don't want to say that's the origin of it, but maybe in the West, that's one of the earliest forms that we have of it written down. And I mean, you, know, you can. Well, I think it, it's. I mean, it, well, it speaks to things that are fundamentally true about men and about women, and what and what motivates us and. Um, you know, but a story like that, unless it's told from the perspective of of uh, a female empowerment today, I guess you know it, it, it would be taboo to, to to say. I mean, another example I like to use is the Macbeths and Shakespeare's Macbeth. There's a scene, um, the the character of Lady Macbeth in particular is very interesting because the first half of the play, you know, she talks a real big game, and she's she has a whole monologue where she's like you know unsex me here that's what it's called she says she wishes that she wasn't that she weren't a man she looks around her she sees all of these weak men who who won't step up to the plate and you know particularly her husband macbeth the title character and there's a scene where you know she she basically convinces him 
to assassinate the king so that he himself may rise to power and she becomes the queen. And there's this great scene where uh, Macbeth has, a, has a, an attack of his consciousness and he can't do it. He, he refuses to kill this king. This king has been loyal to him this entire time, you know. And at this point, Macbeth is being celebrated as a war hero and someone who saved Scotland where the play is set. And this entire scene, she is needling him and needling him. She's questioning his manhood. She's like, what are you afraid? You know, you're so weak. And he's, and he's saying, I can't do it. And so you see this manipulation happening where finally this, this woman, she doesn't use force, but she does, you know, question who he is as a man. And finally, you know, he ends up relenting. And the thing about that is that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are many, many men who can identify with being pushed into doing something they don't want to do because of the insistence and the, I guess you would call it the social and even emotional manipulation of their female partner. And, you know, some might call it nagging to reduce it to, to, to that sort of a level. But what's interesting is that in the second half of the play, and it's sort of, you know, tangentially related, but, you know, she she ends up being unable to deal with the weight of the of of what her actions have caused, and so she ends up having a mental breakdown, and she kills herself off stage. And um, so it's it's such a fa a fascinating character arc. But what I love about that scene, and I think about it, you know, if I'm if I'm an actor approaching it, uh, playing Macbeth, and you know, my 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 acting partner is playing Lady Macbeth. I've, I really feel like there's a, there's a realm where we could both attack the scene from completely different angles, you know, as a man and as a woman, because that's what, that's what it is. It's a domestic dispute between the two of them. And, um, and they can have completely divergent views about how the scene should go, but it can still work because at the core of it, it's you're having this man and this woman who are married and they're having, and they're having a very intense uh, conflict and they have to negotiate around that. And, and again, it just goes back to you know, these, these sort of truths about who men and women are. Another example I can think of is Mark Antony and Cleopatra from Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. Mark Antony is this great general who's going off winning wars and fighting battles, but Cleopatra has him wrapped around his finger. She, he will do anything that she says. And, and, and it causes both their downfalls at the end of it, but, but at the end of it, they just, they can't get enough of each other. It's kind of toxic in a way, but you know, these are stories that are hundreds of years old again. And we still see these same sorts of things in our own lives. And, um, you know, but at the same time, I think these writers from the past, they were unencumbered by, you know, concepts such as political correctness. And so they, and, and they had more of a mandate to tell or more leeway to tell the truth. And that's about the truth about who we are as people. And, um, I think once once you begin to lose that, you, that that's why you, you you get more and more people who are who become unmoored from reality and, and unmoored from um, from what we are as people. I mean, it's not that it's not that uh, you want to exclude you know others or more marginalized people, but it's also say, okay, look, we can include you all as well, but we also can't forget the root and the core of of who we are, and that's what these stories you know reflect back to us. And you and, and we lose that if we just keep excising these great writers trying to find the most obscure, you know, examples of, of, uh, of diverse uh, uh, um, authors. Now, you mentioned playing uh, Macbeth. Now, the whole, again, this gets back to representation. I really don't have a problem. I think actually, okay, someone like Idris Elba, I think he would make a great James Bond. Like, I mm. don't really have an issue with that. Yes, I know the character fictionally was white, whatever, right? But you can write that in. 
and same thing with Shakespeare. Like I, the okay, this isn't technically Shakespeare, but the movie ran. It came out in the eighties. It was a Japanese movie, and it was basically the King Lear story, but it was told with sons instead of daughters. And it's like I said, it's all Japanese. I mean, like something like Shakespeare, it shouldn't matter. Okay. I guess if you're playing Othello, yes, that kind of makes a difference. Lawrence Olivier blackface is a little, you know, taboo right now, but you know, a little bit, yeah, but like my high school used to do Shakespeare every year. We put on one play every year and that's a, that's the play we learned in English class that year. It didn't matter that, you know, black kids were playing, you know, the lead in a Shakespeare play and it shouldn't, but, but like, where's that coming from? Like where, like, like, is that coming from actors? Is that coming from like the acting guild? Or like, where's that kind of drive of saying only X can play X? Like when I see Scarlett Johansson apologizing for wanting to play a trans woman, I'm like, aren't you acting? Like, isn't that the whole point? <laughs> well, um, what you're talking about, there's a practice that's very prevalent in, in the theater um, and in the opera as well. Um, I think in some ways the opera was sort of ahead of the game uh, in terms of uh, what I'm talking about, but it's called a non-traditional casting, otherwise known as colorblind casting. And that's basically, you know, it's what it sounds like. It's where you, you know, you take a play that, you know, like a, a Shakespeare play, for instance, that would, you know, that would traditionally be populated by white actors and, or European actors and, uh, you know, you put people of any race, color, creed into it. And the reason that it, that it works and the reason that most people don't have an issue with it, um, I mean, some do, you know, like sometimes it can be hard to follow a story because, you know, like Hamlet's father might be played by a black person, but Hamlet himself, you know, might be white, you know, or vice versa. And sometimes you get people like, like audience members who complain about that kind of a thing. But generally it's okay because the, the race of the character, um, has very very little impact on 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 you know on where the story goes and and, and it's like it's it's a very it's not really an important issue as far as um having the narrative make sense although anyway when you think about it you know it, it will be tough to be truthful anyway i mean if you're if you're doing julius caesar shakespeare's julius caesar it's set in rome most of the actors aren't going to be italian that you're working with anyway you know what i mean so it's kind of moot but the flip side is that uh, when you're talking about a play such as A Raisin in the Sun or any of August Wilson's works, being, being Black is very is central to, to the message or, or the themes of the story. So it doesn't, it doesn't really work in reverse. But when you have someone like a Scarlett Johansson who has to uh, apologize for something, I mean, you know, it, it depends on it sounds to me like the, the complaint is probably because being trans is central to the given circumstance, what we, we call them given circumstances of, of the story. And thus, you know, if an individual isn't transgender, it might have, it, it might not make the story make sense. But even that said, um, I mean, I don't know the specifics of the whole ScarJo thing, but it's like, yeah, you know, how how many other uh, how many transgender actresses can you think of have the same sort of clout that Scarlett Johansson does? They're, you know, it's it's a business as well, and there's not many. And you know, I guess I guess the choice is, you know, you, you could have Scarlett play it and her not be trans, still have a trans story, you know, or you could have somebody who is actually trans. And of course, there's you know one of the jokes um, about acting is that you know so many people want to do it that if you needed a six foot tall Korean midget 
you would be able to find some six foot tall Korean midget who could who could act the part. There's somebody out there. Um, so you know that that's kind of the, the sort of milk toasty both sides argument of it. And uh, but at the same time, it's like yeah, you know, uh, I mean Tom Hanks in the '90s played a gay character in, in the movie Philadelphia, which is a uh, which is like you know right in the middle of the the AIDS epidemic, and it was very it was very powerful portrayal. But nowadays, you know, I don't think Tom Hanks would be able to get to would be able to get away with playing that role. Okay, so, like, you know, I, I don't I'm not, I'm not sure what, you know, they, they call themselves progressive, but 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 progressive relative to what? I'm not exactly sure. OK, like what you mentioned about Raising the Sun. OK, I get that. Like, there are I'm sure there's plays that are just I'm not just like trying to think of one right now where it's specific to a white family or a Jewish family or something like that, which it. So I can see, you know, someone trying to do Raising the Sun with a Japanese cast, or, you know, like that's, it's gonna be hard to push, but I'm just talking about in general and just fiction and just, you know, the vast majority of stories that are out there that are fiction, I don't think should have an issue. Like the, there's that one series out in the UK right now. Um, I think it's, I don't know if it's UK or if it's Netflix or something, but it's, and there's a lot of complaints about it. They have like uh, Asian and like black characters in the nobility and things like that. Now, someone wrote something about it recently and it was apparently like, it's supposed to be a alternate history where the British actually signed some agreement like back at that time period. And that's, and so they're just showing an alternate history. So I don't have a problem with that, but selling that as history, it's like, okay, well, no, it wasn't like that. Okay. You know, we talk about slavery these days. We talk about colonialism these days. We talk about all the bad that did. So no, that didn't really happen, right? right Unless yeah. it was like some Moorish king or something that came up. But but if they're just doing an alternate history, I don't have I don't have a problem. But like there was that uh, black woman who was playing Anne Boleyn. I'm like, okay, if you're making accurate historical fiction, or if you're making an actual you know historical documentary or something, then I have a problem with that. Or like I said, something like Raisin in the Sun or um uh pearl buck's book the good earth about a garden in china like i mean they go like you would you would expect to see chinese people in that you know like not norwegians mm-hmm. you know like yeah and I, I guess it comes down to what uh i'm trying to remember who said it about porn like i don't really know what it is but i know when i see it so like you know when there's something <laughs> you know like i said the james bond thing no big deal shakespeare no big deal maybe you can get into some of shakespeare's histories but for the most part it the quality of the actor should be what matters, not, you know, yeah, immu- yeah. immutable you, characteristic or something. Well, well, you would hope so, but uh, you know, I mean, I've I've seen a lot of people talk about that that particular project you're talking about. I think it's Anne Boylan or, or whoever the character's name is mm-hmm. that, that's being played by mm-hmm. by a black woman, and and on one hand, you know, people need to understand that the actors are not giving themselves these jobs nine times out of 10. So, you know, you, you can't really blame them. And, you know, they're, they're trying to build careers, you know, especially, especially for women, you know, I mean, the, the time window, I mean, it's, that's one of the sad realities of the industry is that for women often the time window is so short so they, that they can capitalize on, you know, all that they bring to the table and, uh, you know, make, make a little money off of it, you know, hopefully. But I don't know what service it does to her career to, uh, to tell the story in this way. And, and I agree, like, if, I mean, if it's something where they're just like, yeah, you know, we're telling the story and in, in a sort of stylized way. And, um, you know, and if you don't like it, that's cool. But 
you know, if, if it's from the angle of, you know, British history is, is all of our history and this is a radical sort of retelling of, mm-hmm. of the story, then yeah, that, that's, that's kind of cool. I mean, it's kind of what Hamilton is, right? It's, 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 this, it's a, a classic and really great story told in a really theatrical way and that, that you might not expect. But, it, but like you said, if it's being presented as if this, this was the reality and, and, and it's supposed to be, um, and it's marketed as being historically accurate, then you're going to run into some backlash and problems. And one of my fears now is that for more minority actors, um, my fear is that audiences will begin to reflexively reject any time they see an actor who wasn't white, oddly enough, ironically enough. They're just, they're going to say, um, like, for instance, I had a friend who had, I mean, I still have this, this particular friend, she's still alive, we're still friends. But uh, I was doing a play off Broadway. It was an adaptation of, um, of Bizet's opera, Carmen, except that uh, Oscar Hammerstein, who's well-known as a lyricist for, um, for uh, like Carousel and uh, Oklahoma and those sorts of you know, Broadway uh, classics from the golden age era, he decided he was gonna adapt this, uh, this opera and set it in 1947 uh, you know, during the war. And it was gonna be an all black um, cast. And, um, you know, it, and this was done in the, it was done in 1947, is what I think what I just said. And so this is all this is long, long, long before, you know, any sort of, any sort of massive push for social justice or inclusion or diversity. It was just the storyteller who said, oh, wait, I see some interesting parallels. Here's a new way to tell the story. Let me adapt it, you know, to this other sort of culture, through, through this other cultural lens. And um, when I told my friend about it, who is definitely uh, more to the right of myself than I am. You know, her initial reaction was like, oh God, really they're gonna like race swap Carmen. And I had to, I had to be like, whoa, slow your roll, hold up. This is a whole different thing. They're not trying to, um, they're not trying to, uh, to, to uh, reinvent the wheel. They're, they're just taking the music from this opera and they're, and they're, it's, I mean, it's actually really a form of cultural appropriation if you think about it. They're taking this European art form and then they're filtering it through the lens of this, uh, this Black American experience in the mid 20th century um, during, uh, during World War II. And, um, you know, and it's, and it's really interesting and it was a really successful production, but just but me having to talk her off the ledge and, and having to interest her in seeing it, I, 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 my concern is that there's gonna be more and more of that kind of backlash, be it in comic books or in video, like, people's initial reaction is going to be like, well, it's a black character. They're not going to be like, oh, that's cool. They're going to be like, well, what message are they trying to send right now? What are, what are their politics behind this? And I, I'm just not going to support that. Maybe I might be overshooting it, but you know, I do, I do worry about that kind of just maybe subterranean backlash to get into form against uh, actors who look like me, frankly. Okay. Well, look, I mean, I, I get that because, okay. The Captain Marvel movie. Like I, I like the comic book movies. I used to read a lot of comics when I was a kid. So you know, yeah, same, when, when, same. It, when it came out, I went and saw it. I'd heard all this stuff. And I was like, all right, it wasn't great, but it wasn't nearly as bad as everyone was saying. I'm like, okay, the parts with uh, uh, Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson, that was just basically a cop buddy movie. That's all it was. Right. I mean, and it was, yeah. And like you know, one, one bit of it, like when they played the, um, uh, what song do they play? Like I'm just a girl. Oh, the, okay, the, okay. the no doubt song. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. yeah. Fine. You got a little bit of girl power in there, but even then, like it kind of fit in with the movie and it was okay. But I mean, just the reflexive reaction, like, I don't want to go see this because it's, you know, it's good. And I, I see that like, I, okay. Like on my end, I noticed all this stuff in 2014. Like I'd been away from 2002 to 2000, 
Uh, I came back to Canada in 2014, like in end of February, beginning of March. Mm. Um, and I was away in war zones and stuff. I mean, I'd come back on leave oh, wow. and things, but I didn't follow anything on social media. Didn't really pay attention to any of the stuff that was going on. So I was like the frog thrown in the boil of water, just freaking out. Like, what the hell is going on here? Right, right. Um, but yeah, like, I've been saying like, you're going to get an overcorrection now. Like, I mean, mm. you know, the, the thing in Charlottesville, I'm like, okay, that's an overcorrection. Like you've been getting, you've been telling everyone to focus on race and focus on their racial identity in a majority white populated country. And you're scratching your head wondering why Charlottesville happened. Like, like how stupid yeah, are you? It, like, it, 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 should, it shouldn't be a mystery as to why people are shouting in the, in the streets with tiki torches saying you will not replace us. You know, I mean, it's it's not to it's not to sympathize or condone what they were doing, but it's like, well, every well, you mentioned. I mean, I know that Newton now has been canceled, but it's you know, what's what's that rule for every action? There's an equal and opposite reaction. I mean, it applies to real life as well. I don't, and people just I don't see how they can't make that connection, or they're refusing oh. to do it. Oh yeah, I know. But I mean, like, the, and I'm still worried. I mean, like I said, I've been paying attention to the schools, and. I started, like, I started reading up into the schools and stuff about around 2018, and and like this was in high schools in around 2010, um, and then after George Floyd, all you had was Black Lives Matter curriculum going across, you know, yeah. public schools in the country, and in the 1619 project as well. Oh, but yeah, but I mean. Okay, there's a school in uh, Pennsylvania or one district in Pennsylvania, so I don't know how many schools. And this is to kindergarten kids. The book's mm. called Not My Idea. It's about how whiteness is bad. And near the end of the book, there's a contract. It shows you what a contract of whiteness is. And it says whiteness has always been a bad idea. And if you sign this contract of whiteness, you're selling your soul. And you get to oppress people. You get free land. You get blah, 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 this blah. This is a blah. children's book? Kindergarten. I'm like, no, man. You don't do that. Like, it's uh, There was another place I heard about... Uh, I think the school is being sued. I'd have to go back and check, but it was first graders and second graders. They got them to dress up as the KKK and Knight Riders and the, like the Knight Riders right after the civil war and, and got them to run around the classrooms. I'm like, what are you doing to kids? <laughs> it's like, it, it, it's, I mean, it, you almost wished for, for a return to Cowboys and Indians the, the, yeah. to much simpler times. But, uh, but it's, you know, I, I keep thinking of, um, of the Christopher Hitchens quote about, um, I'm sure he's not the first person to really articulate this, but, you know, it, religion is one of the things that can make otherwise good people believe in bad ideas. And uh, this, to me, is, is part and parcel of these bad ideas. These people are, are acting in a way that's consistent with their vision of the world, but also, frankly, it's in line with their, their religion. You know, it's like, well... You know, they, they, like they talk about, uh, like a lot of secularists, for instance, will talk about the evils of Christianity and how it was used to justify slavery, as an example. Well, here what you're doing is you're justifying racism in service of your of your secular religion right now. And um, and it, you have all the all the same kinds of righteousness and sanctimony that we used to make fun of in, in evangelicals, you know, during the during the, the George W. Bush years. It's yeah. it's she was flipped now. But but there's. Another aspect to this, like, you know, like Scarlett Johansson can't play a trans woman or whatever. Okay. I, I'm not trying to like, you know, bring acting down to one thing, but it requires imagination. It's, you know, from the, from the part of the audience and from the, the performer, you, you have to have some imagination. Like 
when I see, you know, like I said, the superhero movies, people can't fly. So I got to spend some belief there for a minute. But uh, now this is anecdotal, but I've, and I've heard a few anecdotes like this. A, a buddy of mine, he's got a three-year-old kid. He went to go Halloween shopping with his son to pick out a costume. And he was like, I saw a couple other dads there with their kids. And he said, like, the other kids were, you know, around nine or ten. Now, one of the dads goes to pick a costume off the shelves. And the kid says, I can't wear that. That's offensive. Now, okay, if it's a little white kid who wants to dress up as Black Panther, I mean, obviously, like, I'm not saying put, like, you know, shoe polish on his face, but buy him the goddamn costume and let him go out as Black Panther. You know, or I don't care if your little boy wants to go out as Mulan. You know, it's it's kids being imaginative. And also, and like, on top of that, it, that, that <laughs> sorry to cut you off, but yeah. that, that shows the impact that the character of Black Panther has had. Yeah. This Black superhero, you know, wants to be emulated by these white kids now. I mean, that's, that is, that is, prog- is, is that not progressive? Is yeah. that not these white kids saying, wow, this is a really cool character. I mean, I wanted to, I dressed up as Batman when I was, I put, you know, a little shitty towel, you know, <laughs> stuffed it into my shirt and, and cut. My mom was pissed off, but I, I you know, cut little, you know, so, so it looked like Batman's cape, you know, or I take, I take her curtain rods and try to like fight other kids in the neighborhood, like with fake lightsabers as Luke Skywalker. Like I'm inspired by these kids, but now we have kids who are inspired by Black Panther, you know, and it's a great character to be inspired by. I mean, he's heroic in the classical sense. So what's wrong with that? But again, these people are, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. And, and, you know, I, I just, uh, but the, again, it's, it's their, it's their religion. I guess if you want to, if you want to. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I, I just, I and also just, yeah, no problem. But also like the, the religion thing, that's, uh, it was actually Steven Weinberg who said that he said, uh, bad people will do gotcha. bad things. Good people will do good things, but only religion will make good people do bad things. So, right. Yeah. That's a great yeah, way to put it. Yeah. But yeah, I know that. Oh, okay. Look, the, the, the religious aspects of this stuff, uh, Again, when I first came back, the first thing I, I was like, oh, you can't say this. You can't say that. Um, I mean, I got called a white supremacist for criticizing Islam. And I was like, huh? Where, where's that coming from? And, but I'm like, these are secular blasphemy laws. And that's why yeah. like, now I see this thing like, like cancel culture or whatever. I'm like, don't, like, we don't need new words for this stuff. You know, or like, I see a lot of people saying, oh, they're neo-racist. I'm like, you know what? No, they're not. They're just old-fashioned racist. There's nothing new about racism. <laughs> You're just racist. Just call them what they are. Like it's it's not fucking council culture. Those are blasphemy codes. These are like speech codes. Mm. It's, it's you know someone like a professor. Um, I'm trying to think of either. I just spoke to him recently. He's uh, from University of Central Florida. He put out some tweets that were in the vein of something Thomas Sowell would say. Um, but you know he's not black, and then he got fired. Wow. You know. Okay, that you can say cancel culture, whatever, but it's, you know, again, it's blasphemy code. You're you're telling him what he can't say. And it was, you know, he was talking about it and they went back, he got fired in 2020. They went back to 2005 and some student emailed, like they went out to his students and said, give us all the things of when he's being racist. What? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, some student from 2005 said, well, he said this in this one classroom. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's 15 years ago. Like I had some professors I hated in university, but never in my wildest dreams would I hold on to something they said for 15 years and just, yeah, it's ridiculous. But I mean, like, so like, like all this stuff, like it is a religion. It is blasphemy codes. I mean, the one thing they don't have that even ISIS offered, ISIS offered you a heaven. These people don't have a heaven. It's it's yeah well well they do have it happen it's it it is a uh, uh I, I've said this before but you know uh, 
heaven to them is a feminist utopia where God is a is a fat black transgendered quadriplegic in a hijab. That is that is their that is their yeah. God. That is who they worship. And um, but yeah, whatever. I mean, hell is a cis heteronormative patriarchy, yeah. and um, whatever whatever heaven is, it's the opposite of that. Yeah, that's uh, I like I see so much. Okay, like I know the I know Jordan McWhorter is writing the, uh, his book um, about this, like called the elect, and I know he's, he's probably going to base it. Right, I've yeah. been reading some of it, and he yes, there are a lot of Christian undertones because it came out of like you know, critical race theory came out of American law, like you know this is it's a very specific American thing that came out of American law, and so, but it's got a lot of Islam to it too. Um, Islam has I think this, didn't, uh, didn't Tulsi Gabbard make that connection? She recently like she compared she, i think she compared I didn't, I didn't see her full comments but the, the, there was some clickbait headline that, that said she compared into isis or something like that and i was like i don't know if she did that but <laughs> okay, but i've compared the schools that are coming out to i i just call them woke madrasas like a like the wow. spe- specific islamic schools they're they're called madrasas and right yeah but i mean that's when you're starting telling kindergarten kids that being white is bad it's a bad idea and like shit like that like you're indoctrinating kids at this point. So that, that's why he said it. But like Islam has this idea called um, it's jihad. So mm-hmm. there's three forms of jihad and okay. uh, the, the lowest is the, the holy war and you go out and kill people, whatever the highest apparently is. Um, it's you, it's an internal struggle with yourself to make yourself good. Um, again, um, from the Christian side, you had uh, sh- uh, small as the gate and narrow as the path that lead it into life. In Christianity, you have this thing that's, uh, sorry, in Islam, you have this thing called the Sirat al-Mustaqim. And the Sirat al-Mustaqim is the the narrow path that leads you to God or the straight path that leads you to God. And on all sides, there's there's sin. Um, Hmm. Now, the Ijtihad is to bring yourself on that right path. But when you look at things like white fragility or white privilege and, you know, you check your privilege and if you go to the D'Angelo extreme where you have to look at every single thing you did that day long in a racial lens, that's what that is. You're looking at yourself Mm. for your internal sin and you're looking at the, and it's, so there's, they've picked up a lot of religious nonsense in this and it's, wow. I I mean, I, I kind of think of it almost like uh, Stalin, like the guy was a failed Russian priest and he used what he learned in the seminary to, you know, convert people (laughs) like, you know, he, he, he led his cult, and I mean, I, I honestly think these people are doing the same thing. They're they're using the cult like aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, and and what are the? I mean, I, I do want to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna dive more deeply into this. Um, there there might even be a series uh, in, in there, but it isn't the idea that people who are who are indoctrinated into uh, who are indoctrinated into cults, uh, they're always the people who think that they could never ever be indoctrinated. Like, isn't that part of? Isn't that part of the deal? Like, that's how really highly intelligent people end up uh, end up in cults is that is that my uh, off base in that i don't know anything about like okay the michael Shermer did this thing like why smart people believe stupid things and i've seen some of this stuff um in a few other places it's the smarter you are and the more educated you are like you like as you're going up at your doctorate levels and things like that you get better at rationalizing things so you can yeah, rationalize you know your own yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I made this. I, well, I came to this conclusion. You know, this is a few weeks ago, but you know, I, I tweeted about it and I said something about, along those lines. Like, you know, a, a powerful mind can actually be dangerous because it has that much more ability 
to rationalize complete nonsense. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a double, it's the double-edged sword. The smarter you are, the, the more susceptible you are to, to fortifying faulty beliefs in, in your, in your head. But I mean, like, I think some of this stuff, okay. Again, it comes out of, it's coming out of the Academy. And I think part of this is, and this is just, you know, this could be my little tinfoil hat thing, but I've spoken to a couple of academics and they agree with me, but whatever it's the, the English department's not going to go to physics and say, you don't know how to do physics. And the physics department is not going to come to the English department and correct them on the literature they're studying or anything like that. But the gender studies department can go to physics department saying you're being sexist. Now someone in the physics department's like, they've got a PhD in gender studies. That's what they specialize in. I don't know. Like, uh, I appreciate people who can go through doctorates and stuff like that. And like, I appreciate the time and effort it takes to go in there. But I think they've given so much of an appreciation to that, that they're not even questioning what's coming from another PhD. Like a physicist will question another physicist. Like, if for some reason Lawrence Krauss said, you know, I can turn lead into gold, like every other physicist is going to call bullshit on that. Like <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, you know, a gender studies PhD comes in and says, your department's too sexist. Because of that PhD, they're going to be taken aback. And I don't know if you've read the book, Kindly Inquisitors, uh, Jonathan Rook's book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, he wrote it in 92 or 93. And it was really, really present. And he, and he called this stuff the humanitarian threat to liberal science. And mm. he said, you know, you have the authoritarian threats. So you're like, you know, the evangelicals, the, you know, the Ayatollah putting the fatwa out on Salman Rushdie. But he said, this is the humanitarian threat. And he was also already talking about it coming out in like 89 and 90 in the universities, like stopping speech because of, oh, it's racist. It's going to harm black students. So you can't have racist talk. Um, and that's what this stuff is. It, it's like, you know, don't you want to be anti-racist? You know, don't you want to fight transphobia or homophobia? Like the, um, I saw your talk with um, Carrie Smith and, you know, you'd mentioned like, you know, you're, you're an atheist and like same here. I, oh, I haven't, haven't believed in anything in like 35 years uh, that way. Like, uh, but you see it in the atheist community, like the younger atheists are going through college are gravitating mm. towards this because especially if they came from harsh backgrounds like Islam or evangelicalism or Orthodox Judaism or anything like that, you know, the Abrahamic faiths are misogynistic and homophobic and, you know, the whole gamut. They see something that says it's not, you know, but it's just as dogmatic. So they might just, okay, I know I'm no longer religious, but no one's taught them how to think differently. Mm-hmm. So they still have that dogma and they go over to this one. Like I, I, I can almost see a pipeline from that. Well, it makes me wonder, you know, I mean, conservatives, well, I see some conservatives talking about, uh, they call it um, a God shaped hole, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I'm not somebody who, I mean, I'm sure like you, like yourself, I'm not somebody who really, um, they tend to come at it from the perspective of like, of, of humanity needs religion in some sort of way. I'm not sure they need religion, at least as I understand it, or how we usually, or how we colloquially understand it. But in terms of something bigger than ourselves to believe in a cause or some sort of overarching idea to dedicate ourselves to, it seems as though, you know, this is serving. And this, you know, again, I I feel like I have so much catching up to do as I enter more into this public arena. But um, in terms of 
but I think it has something to do with, you know, with arts as well, but in, in terms of it being ritualistic and, um, and spiritual in a way, you know, these people are dedicating themselves to a, to a cause, to a righteous cause, to a, to a higher cause. And just like you said, you know, you made the, uh, the comparison of, of madrasas, uh, which, you know, were, were a hot topic a few, a few years ago, I remember. But I also remember thinking, you know, I don't know if you, you ever saw the, um, the documentary Jesus Camp. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, and I remember seeing it and being horrified by these children. And you, know, you see the six or seven year old little boy who's saying, yeah, you know, I just I didn't really know what I wanted out of life. And I'm like, dude, you're seven. You know, what are you talking about? What you want out of life? You know, and, and, and these, these adults who are talking about how Harry Potter is evil and it's witchcraft and these kids are crying. They're having these, they're being coaxed into these quasi-religious experiences. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, we were all horrified by that, but no one is horrified by the concept of these teachers who are telling children that there's, that there's no differences between the genders and that being white is wrong. And, you know, and they're being basically in, indoctrinated. That, that's the word that you use. And I think it's an accurate one, you know, in, in, into a progressive or maybe even a progressive Marxist worldview or quasi-religion in the same way that the kids in Christian schools or in madrasas are being indoctrinated. But no one seems to have an issue with that because, and this is sort of me binging on Thomas Sowell uh, lately in terms of how he views, you know, our, our competing visions of the world and, you know, specifically the vision of the anointed, as he calls these people. They are this intelligentsia, these cultural elites or whatever, these people who are in charge of these educational institutions, you know, they have one vision of the world and and all the faulty assumptions that fall in line with that, with that I mean, almost faith-based belief, honestly, um, they're, being, they're, they're being pumped into the heads of these, of these kids who are defenseless against this kind of nonsense. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know what the, what the solution is other than everyone just homeschooling their kids. You but, know? But, but even the homeschooling, like what you said there, like the, the, I don't think of it as a religion shape hole, um, but it, it's more mm. of like a, a lack of meaning or meaning making. But like I given, uh, I, I talked about this once and I was on a little panel and I, and like what I'd mentioned was, if, okay, so take the Abrahamic faiths again. So the fall from paradise, right? So Eve eats, everyone says, oh, she eats the fruit of the tree of knowledge. So that's what, you know, not everyone, but like colloquially, that's what it says, but it's not, it's, it's the knowledge of good and evil. Like knowledge, you know, quote unquote science, like I'm not saying this is science, but as God was like, I did this in six days. I made you people. I created all this. This all comes from me. Worship me. There's your science that was taken care of as far as God was concerned, right? The knowledge that was denied was what's good, what's evil. That is the humanities. That is philosophy. That is, you know, thinking other than just pure, you know, obedience to, to God. That's what That's what's kind of missing. And I mean... If you take the United States, and now that was built on Enlightenment ideals. You have the Declaration of Independence, and then you have your Constitution written. I'm not going to say they ever lived up to those ideals. It took from 1776 to the end of the 1960s before, at least in law, they were legally trying to live up to those ideals. And without getting jingoistic and without getting you know, ultra-nationalistic or anything, you can sell the story of those ideals. Not like America's the greatest, but, you know, like I said, not, you don't have to go that far, but just the ideals upon which it was built. 
as a shared identity or a shared story. Um, and I, I don't know if you've read Schopenhauer. Again, I haven't read a lot, but he, he wrote this one thing about truth. And he said, truth is like a vessel that needs to be refilled. So, I mean, you go to church every Sunday, you go to mosque every Friday, you go to synagogue every, you know, like keep repeating these things. Like people keep going back to Anthony Robbins seminars because after about six months that wears off, right? Like you have to keep going mm -hmm. back. So, I mean, again, like I think that's why education is important. If you had a, like they got rid of civics education. So if you actually brought back civics education and, you know, had kids read the Federalist Papers so you saw the founding fathers of the United States arguing amongst themselves about slavery. So you saw that, that that debate was going on at that point. You can see the history of those ideals and how, no, they weren't lived up to, but how they started being lived, you know, like how they started trying to cash in that check, like saying, okay, you know, we're going to fulfill this promise. And I think like that's, if you want to talk about a religion shaped whole or whatever, but like, if you want to have an identity, you want to have something, I think it needs to be built on around something like that. And well, not these ideals. I think, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I, I think the, um, the concept of believing in something bigger than yourself, I, I think is, is sort of, um, central to it you know and and i think when people use that term at least as when i hear it i, I normally think of oh well, they're thinking of god or religion but that something bigger than yourself could be your purpose something bigger than yourself could be you know your society or just your neighborhood and um and trying to uphold whatever ideals or values that that that, that entails i mean that that could be something that's that's larger than that larger than yourself you know on the maybe not on a, on a religious level but similarly i mean um, but you, going back a little bit, something that I want to say before, you know, you mentioned like the, uh, the humanities or humanitarians and, and one of my struggles right now, and this sort of circles back in, into the arts is, um, you know, the, the roles of beauty and transcendence. And I think the idea of transcendence is something that is, that is more and more uh, it's taking up more and more storage space in, in, in my head. You know, how, how can we restore uh, transcendence to the arts? You know, if I go and see a Marvel movie, you know, I'm, I, I'm watching, I, I'm fully aware that I'm a grown ass man watching, you know, Captain America, Civil War or Avengers or Avengers Infinity War and just an ugly crying at all these, you know, dramatic turns, but I'm so, I'm so invested in it. And, um, but it's it's because it's not about all the pew pew. It's not about the special effects or the CGI. It's not about the costumes. It's about the the core human stories that are being told. And the the more that I think about it, the more I feel like you know a lot of the this progressive push or whatever. It feels in a way you know it's it's supposed to be about diversity or inclusion or love or whatever. But it feels in in many ways anti humanitarian. It's it's going against who we are and what we are as people. And um, so, and, and infusing these ideas of, you know, of, of whiteness or, you know, or, or these ideas about gender and, and these kids, I mean, it's, it's taking us away from, if, I mean, we, I guess we would be called, you know, people with old beliefs or whatever, we'd be called dinosaurs, but it's like, yeah. no, with dude, rumors. like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but it's like, is there, excuse me, but is there not a world where we can acknowledge the, the you know, the, the presence of say sexual minorities and say that, that, that their minority status does not, uh, does not justify in any way, shape or form discriminatory treatment or harassment or bullying while also maintaining an understanding of who we are as people. And, uh, 
it feels like a lot of the arts now, are, it's being steered more toward advocacy and sending this kind of message or spreading this kind of belief system as opposed to, you know, being grounded in truth and continuing to explore, you know, our shared human experience, although, we, you know, in, in different novel ways, you know. So, in, in, so again, yeah, in a way, it's sort of, sort of anti-humanitarian. I feel like I kind of hijacked what were you going with that, but uh, oh, it's... Oh, t- totally, they have, but I, okay, sticking with this, I wanted to ask you this, and I don't want to keep it too much longer because I figure you're busy, but we can kind of maybe end on this, like the, the preachiness. Okay. I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, in the heat of the night with Sidney Poitier and uh, Rob. Yeah. 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 Okay. There's that one, yeah. yeah he, he says, you know, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Okay. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Okay. Now you can say that's a bit of preachiness, but you know what, for when that movie was made, that was quite appropriate. And, and it's not over the top. Like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of like, like the, the newest Wonder Woman movie there that that was like way too much over the top. Like, go. Oh, I didn't see yeah, it. I didn't it, see it. It's, it's, yeah, don't bother. It's just, it's, it's not good. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, or even um, I'm trying to think, but yeah, well, there's, there's some preachiness that comes out and it's, it's just over the top and it just, yeah, I don't want to watch that. Like, you know, in the heat of the night was a great movie. Yes. It had a message, you know, they were talking to you. But they were doing it with a good story, well written. It wasn't just like you know, it wasn't a pie in your face type of thing. Are you seeing more of that coming down the pipe? Do you see it maybe trying to change, or like, like, or like, how's that going? So, so um, there's a really fascinating book whose author I can't think of right now, but it's called Pictures at a Revolution, and it, it's. It's centered around the 1968-1969 uh, Academy Awards uh, season, uh, the, the race for, um, for best picture. And uh, what the author does is he looks at these five films, these five films that were up for best picture nominations, and he goes into the background of how they were made, the major players who were involved in making them. But he also talks about how these five films were indicative of the cultural conflicts and shifts that were happening at that time. So I think it's Dr. Doolittle somehow um, in the heat of the night, uh, uh, the graduate, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Warren Beatty's Bonnie and Clyde, the, the, you know, three great films. And then there was one other one. I don't want to say, I don't want to say guess who's coming to dinner, but it's one of these other sort of assimilationist uh, kind of films. And it was like old Hollywood and new Hollywood and the cultural shifts that, that were taking place at the time. And In the Heat of the Night was one of those message films that, um, that really, you know, hit it out of the park at the time. But as you said, the story itself, you know, it was very, you know, it's, it's on a, it's a very small scale, right? It's a small town down south. And you have this black detective who, who's coming in to solve this murder and this bullheaded uh, uh, white police chief was played brilliantly by Rod Steiger, who was, I think, one of the most underrated actors ever. And, um, but the thing is, and I was journaling about this this morning, is that, you know, for the time period and what was happening during the time, you could at least say that it may be hokey now, it may be preachy, a little bit preachy now, but at least they were reacting to a problem that was very prevalent at that time. And what I see right now is that you have these people who are sort of carrying on the same sort of struggle, the same sort of tradition of, of putting out this sort of, um, I guess you would say maybe even anti-racist propaganda except they're responding to an issue that does not exist. Or if it does exist, 
It's nowhere near to the extent that they're saying it does. And in many ways, they're creating the very circumstances that, that they claim to be responding to. So, you know, I, I get these, I get these scripts, you know, and there's so much of it that, um, you know, it's part and parcel. Again, it's a part of this, in, this narrow block of people, this intelligentsia who is putting forth this one view of the world. They're filtering out everything that's inconvenient to that vision of the world. And it, again, it, it's just tough to be like, okay, I'm not an, I'm an actor. I'm not, I'm not an activist. I just want to tell, I just want to play cool, you know, not cool, but interesting characters in, in emotionally resonant stories. Like that's, that's pretty much all I want to do, but I don't want to, but I'm confronted con uh, constantly with these scripts that talk about uh, one view on police brutality, or they put forth this vision of, of the world regarding, you know, race or, or gender. You have these characters, these male characters who are pretty much emasculated and never, ever, uh, you know, be, have an idea that that is superior to the female character's ideas. You know, she has to know everything and he has to be some bumble dumb fuck. Um, it's like, well, how are you, how are you a police detective if you're, if you're this incompetent and you need someone else to, you know, to give you all this information. So it's, so I, I see it getting worse before it gets better. You know, I, I mean, I, I read these scripts and, you know, it, it, I mean, I'm fortunate that I get to audition as much as I do, but, uh, it becomes more and more difficult. You know, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, I joke that I would probably be really rich and famous by now if I just, you know, conformed to whatever this belief was. But I read this stuff and sorry, but I'm selective. I'm picky about the things that I choose to work on as an actor and the things that interest me. And I'm just not interested in telling more lies about the Central Park Five or more lies about, you know, Michael Brown and police brutality or more lies about uh, uh, Trayvon Martin. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you know, I, I just, I, I'm not sure where I was going with all of that, but it, I think it's just, it's just this idea that um, these are people who have a very strong, strong hold on, you know, the entertainment industry and they control our culture. And, and as a result, they're also controlling our very perception of reality, which is, you know, they're constructing this reality that is, that doesn't reflect what the, the reality that in the heat of the night reflected. It doesn't reflect the same kind of reality that, uh, that, um, I mean, gosh, I mean, even, even a worse movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I mean, I don't like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I mean, that's, that's, it's, you have Sidney Poitier who's playing the, the, the perfect black man coming to this house. It's like, oh, wow, you're here and you're actually a good guy, you know, but at least, again, at least it's reflective of somebody trying to put forth some kind of message to combat you know, very real uh, experiences that people were that people were going through on the ground at the time, you know. And now I, I can't say the same thing, uh, you know. If 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 I watch, um, you know, like a female superhero, strong female character who who just knows everything and is and is better than everyone around, around them. I think, I think to myself, well, the women in my life that are extremely intelligent and smart and extraordinary, uh, you know, they don't have an, the same kind of inferiority complex that <laughs> they, don't, they don't need to see these stories of themselves reflected as like being superior to everybody else. Everybody else. But, you know, it's, it's kind of a tangent, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, it's gonna take more and more people stepping up and pushing back and just saying, you know, 
we have stories to tell. We're not interested in, in being, it's not that you can't have uh, work that's, that's apolitical. I don't know if it's even really that possible, but you know, we, we, we have to, we have to keep things grounded in, in truth. <laughs> and right now it feels like there's much anti-truth uh, going on. And I think a lot of people can sense it, even if they're afraid to say anything about it. I don't know. That's what I keep telling some of my friends. It's like, you're not, in a facts war anymore you're in a narrative war and it just it went yeah and i think i think it was 9-11 that really made that big shift where hmm. like before 9-11 i mean you always had spin you people were always going to spin bullshit right but you had your narrative that was shaped by the facts after 9-11 it, it switched to shape the facts to fit your narrative and it's well even then though i mean you read stories about uh, how you know the in terms of going back to to, uh, to filtering, uh, you know, uh, inconvenient uh, truths. I mean, you, you read about how the New York Times covered Stalinist atrocities, you know, in, in, in Ukraine and in Russia. And, or um, there was a, one guy who gave a speech I thought was pretty great, but he said, you know, if you were, he talked about how the New York Times was praising Japan's economy before they slipped into, right before they slipped into a decades long recession, or how they, they were talking about uh, they were praising the Soviet Union before, excuse me, the, the United Socialist Soviet Republic, I guess, uh, which people don't really talk about before it collapsed. So I, I don't, I, maybe in the, in the age of the internet and the age of social media, these sorts of uh, false constructed realities are, are metastasizing, you know, really quickly. But I don't think this kind of thing that we're talking about is, is, is that, is that new, you know? Like I said, I'm not saying it's new and, I'm not mm. trying to d- say like it never happened, but I just think after 9-11, again, it was just like it got yeah, 9/11, accelerated. Yeah. And then, you know, a few years later, social media started happening and that's right, what it yeah. really started. But like, okay. The, the Soviet thing, just like, again, like I said, I want to keep you too long, but there's a few movies that were made uh, right around the start of world war two or just before uh, one of them, it was mission to Moscow. Hmm. Now, apparently, Roosevelt had asked for this movie to be made, or yeah, yeah, Roosevelt had asked for the movie to be made because Moscow, Russia was allying, you know, with with the Allies against the Axis, right? So, it was kind of saying, "Oh, the Soviets aren't that bad." When McCarthyism came around, a lot of the people who were making those movies were got put on the list, and it's like, okay, well, you know what? It, when the whole Dr. Seuss thing happened recently, it reminded me of this because some of these people were asked to make these movies pro-Soviet movies. I'm like, like the New York times. I'm not saying it was, or wasn't, I don't know, but I read that. That was like pretty horrible. Like they hid that massacre. Like they hid a genocide basically. Right. Is just, mm. but some of the people who were asked to make the movies were then rounded up by McCarthy and blacklist. And it was like the Dr. Seuss thing was that because, Oh, well look at this propaganda he made during world war two. It's like, you're doing the same thing to Dr. Seuss. That was done by McCarthy. Like, mm. I maybe he decided on his own to make that stuff and send it in the government. But I have a feeling that he was asked to make propaganda because he was an artist. Um, right, right. So, like, some of the stuff, some of the pro-Russia stuff, some of the pro-Soviet Union stuff. I like, like that movie, Mission to Moscow. I'm not saying that those people were doing it purposely for Stalin. Like, is it, that was Roosevelt asking those guys to make that movie. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I get the spin thing. I get like that. It's be always around, but I think it's just, again, it's, I think it's the way it was being taught that the academia around the late nineties switched from 
truth to narrative. And I think that's where it kind of screwed up. Look, like I said, I don't want to keep you too long, but if you have any last words for people about acting, whatever you want to say, uh, let people know where they can get a hold of you. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Well, I mean, gosh, th- there's a lot. I mean, I, just going back on what you just said, dovetailing on that. I mean, you know, th- th- this is exactly the thing that I've been thinking about lately in terms of, and I've said for years, just, just from a, a journalistic perspective, I mean, these people aren't selling you truth. They're, they're peddling narratives. And that's, you know, that's how they make their money, you know, and, and it's funny to see people understand that, you know, the media is, is bullshit, but then they still believe every, every word of it. And, you know, so we're on the precipice of total civilizational societal collapse because people, you know, are ignoring these sorts of understandings. But um, I guess the, um, you know, again, I'm just thinking more of just the, the, um, of course, I've lost the ability to, to express myself. I guess I'll just close out by saying that, you know, if anybody wants to, to, to find me, they can find me on Twitter at Clifton A. Duncan. Uh, they can find me on Instagram at Clifton Duncan online. Uh, they can also find my YouTube channel, Clifton Duncan, which I'm, going to, which I'm going to grow. I just recently completed a GoFundMe, so I was able to buy a new computer and some podcasting gear. So um, I'll be able to, um, to start uh, putting out some some content of my own and, and having more discussions just like this and um you know which could go on for hours but you know we, we both have lives to lead but uh you know i appreciate you for uh, for bringing me on and inviting me to run my mouth as as always and i'll see you i'll, I'll see you on twitter that, that hellscape <laughs> of, of rationality and, and good faith well thanks again for coming on thanks everyone for listening <laughs>